And uh, we're in Genesis chapter 30 today. Last time we covered chapter 29. We are not going to cover the whole chapter of Genesis 30 today. But last time, uh, the scriptures took us pretty briefly through a meeting between Jacob and Rachel, which is Laban's daughter, which is Jacob's mother's, Rebecca's brother. Uh, it had been many years since Rebecca had left, 90, and Rebecca had left to be Isaac's wife, and now here is her son uh, coming to Laban's area. Jacob had been sent by his parents to there to find a wife. They did not want another wife from the Hittite or local clans. And uh, when Jacob arrives, Laban runs out to meet him. Uh, and then he makes a deal with Jacob because he wants Jacob to serve him. And he says, we shouldn't do it for free. And Jacob says, I'm, I'm taken with your daughter, Rachel. And I would work seven years. They agree that he would work seven years. And then the payment, if you will, which paying a bride price was not uncommon in that time. But his payment would be, the bargain would be, Rachel would then be his wife. There's a few things Laban just doesn't choose to mention or makes up later. I don't know which. But when the time comes for the wedding, Laban substitutes Leah. She's the older daughter. Um, is not the bright-eyed one that had captured uh, Jacob's attention. And... When Jacob discovers the next morning that this wasn't Rachel, um, I'm still puzzled by the amount of time involved there, but um, the next morning um, he has a conversation with Laban, and Laban said, well, the younger can't marry before the older. And so uh, Laban, I think out of his shrewdness and playing Jacob a bit, says, tell you what, spend the normal week that we allow for the new bride, kind of their honeymoon, with Leah, and then you can have Rachel for your wife as well. And only a minor another seven years of work uh, for the second wife. And so Laban has used, or at least bargained, so that in the marrying of his two daughters, he gets Jacob's service for 14 years. At the end of chapter 29, <clears throat> we see the words, the Lord saw Leah was unloved. And you can tell that the Lord has some compassion for Leah. Even though there's a whole lot of things going on in the background, the uh, bargainings of men, the whatever shrewdness might have been involved, um, the Lord still loves Leah, even though... She was one of the pawns in this little trading game that went on. <clears throat> and so the Lord blessed her by opening her womb, which childbearing was extremely important to the well-being, to the self-importance. Uh, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but uh, the, the woman's understood position the community was related to childbearing no children barrenness was considered a curse um, and uh, having children particularly sons particularly many sons said you're a blessed woman 
And so the Lord opened her womb. And by the time we get to through the few verses at the end of chapter 29, she's had four sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And at the end of that chapter, then it says, Leah stopped bearing. So she had these four sons. And then it stopped for a bit, at least. We'll see it was for a bit later. With that in mind, I want to read today, ask one of you to read for us, Genesis chapter 30, 1 through 24. So if I could find a volunteer to read that for us, Genesis 30, 1 through 24. I would really appreciate that. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children, or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilia. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant, Bilyeh, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Nephtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant, Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she, so she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, It is a small matter that you have taken away my husband. Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may be with you, no, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages, because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Ishachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. So, obviously today... We're going to spend some time talking about the births of the boys, with the exception of one. It doesn't come up yet today. Of Jacob and his family. What are these sons going to become? 
when all 12 were there? It is out of them and their lineage that the 12 tribes of Judah or the 12 tribes of Jacob, however you want to say it, are, are, are there. And so in verse 1, Rachel noticed, saw, it, it, it finally came home to roost where she had to deal with it in some fashion that she was barren and she had no children. Now at this time, how many children has her sister Leah brought into the marriage? And so uh, she sees she's got no children and uh, it doesn't appear that uh, any are on the way soon. It, it's just a barren situation for the time that they've been married. And she became jealous of her sister. Are there any surprises there? No. As a matter of fact, we could go back and talk for some time about all of the things that are going on here in this household where there are before it's done four women involved in Jacob's life in a way that um, create competition between these two sisters is it fairly normal for sisters to be competitive yeah in some fashion they can sisters generally are very friendly until and uh, then then for a while things can get a little tense and uh, Many women do a good job of putting that in the background, but it's not going to be in the background in this case. So her jealousy is there. Somebody say something. Her jealousy is there, and so she takes that jealousy to Jacob. And she makes a statement. Give me children or I die. So what's she trying to say to Jacob? Yeah. Well, or at least he's the solution. <coughs> she doesn't say, it's your fault I haven't had children, but she says, hey, this needs fixed and you need to fix it. I feel like I'm going to die here or something like that. And um, one of the commentators said, um, the barren wife often would be, I mean, it, it was kind of like there's a deadness in them that they're not having children. They feel dead to the society in a, in a, in a allegorical way because it, this is a big deal. And so she says, or else I die. Is she literally going to die? Not from being barren. And so uh, what was Jacob's response? How did, what's the general nature of his response? He was angry. Yeah, and why was he angry? Yeah, and, and that's literally the words that are recorded. Am I in the place of God who's withheld this fruit of the womb? So who does Jacob see as the one that's in charge of the reproduction in any of these women's lives? Yeah, and so, it's just, you know, God's the one that sees that this results in life or not. And his anger, according to the New American Standard, the way they translate it, is his anger burned against Rachel. And this is his reply. And how do you think Rachel's going to take that? Is that going to cheer her up and go, well, yeah, you're really not God. I shouldn't have come to you. Well, she has a, she has a solution. But if we go back to the response... 
in this culture, the barren woman is considered cursed already, right? And, and I'm not saying Jacob isn't right, but he kind of piles on just a little bit there, and I'm not saying that he shouldn't have said, hey, you're talking to the wrong person. It's God that can do this. Uh, but um, this woman already is saying to herself and to Jacob, this needs fixed. I, I can't, this is a situation that brings grief to me. And she starts out wanting him to fix it. And, he's, and I can see as a man some exasperation here. What do you want me to do? I mean, there's an obvious answer in one sense, but that's already been occurring, I'm certain. And so, you know, he's, he's, he's in a spot, want to make my wife happy if he did. And, you know, he can't, be in, he can't ensure this occurs, but God can and does. And <clears throat> even at the end of chapter 29, we saw God opened Leah's womb. And so here he is saying, God's been withholding this from you, which is just what society would be saying in general in this era. You're you're not favored by God at all. And so that really wouldn't help a lot at at the emotional level. So Rachel says, here's my handmaid Bilhah. Go into her that she may bear on my knees that through her I too may have children. Uh, so what's the solution here? Describe, not in physical detail, but what's, what's, what's going on here? What's Rachel's solution? She's a surrogate. Yeah, surrogate mother. And this was a practice that was done in this era, um, this culture, that you could have your servant be a surrogate mother to bear children and she makes a statement that um, um, I, she may bear on my knees literally the way this was carried out was during the birthing process the chair the birthing chair for the surrogate would be the lap or knees of the one she was representing the one she was truly giving birth in place of have we seen this before? Sarah. We saw it with Sarah. How'd that work out? Not so good. Not so good. Um, this, if we kept reading through the book of Genesis, this doesn't have the level of negative consequences that the presence of Ishmael had. And there are no promises being violated. We've got to remember in Sarah's case, God had come and said, it's out of your loins, Abraham. You're going to be the father of many nations. Well, this wasn't occurring, and so their solution was uh, a surrogate mother. God came back and said, no, no, this is not the child of the promise. The promise will come through Sarah. And so there's a, there, there, it's a different kind of an environment. Those promises, in terms of specific mother involved wasn't wasn't a part of what's going on here certainly the promise of the blessing is coming down through jacob and this is the beginning of fulfilling the promise that you're going to be a father of a great nation and a blessing to all nations on the face of the earth and so so here we are she's giving her maid bilhah so that she can be 
mother in her place, and her children will be considered Rachel's children. In verse 4, it says, So she gave him her maid Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. So um, we need to stop and talk about that just a minute. And I did some looking at the word that's translated wife here, hoping I could get a little bit of help with trying to parse this out to say, what does it mean wife? Because is she now in equal status with Rachel and Leah? And the answer is no. That's clear as we go forward. When these servant ladies give birth, these children are considered their master's children as though they had given birth to them. And so she's not a wife in equal status. I was hoping that it might be a a word that could be translated a number of different ways. But no, it's only really translated wife in the Old Testament. So um, through context, we can tell she's not now on equal status with Rachel and Leah. But Jacob goes into her, as Rachel has asked, and she conceived and bore Jacob a son. So this was the goal that Rachel had by giving to Jacob, her servant, and so they have a son. And then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. Now it's interesting, and you can see why she might make this connection, although there is a fair amount of time that's going by here, right? Because we got the gestation period and so on. But she says, God has vindicated me and has heard my voice and has indeed given me a son. So that's, she's giving God the credit That's a good thing, I think. But she named him Dan. And Dan, the word Dan, I don't know how much to play into these words. I mean, they're trying to put meaning with them. It's very clear from the text. But clearly, um, Dan, the meaning for that is a judge or to judge, depending on whether it's a verb or a noun and how it's used. But he gets the name Dan. Now, is she satisfied, and is this situation over with? Now I have a son, so we'll send the servant back to the side. No. Uh, Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. So Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have indeed prevailed. And she named him Naphtali. Now, Naphtali... um, says is the word for wrestling and so now she sees this as um, she has won the match she has bested her sister Leah do you have any clue as to why she might say that if you were Leah and Rachel came to you at this point and says aha I bested you now how would you respond if you were the competitive sister of Rachel? Huh? I'd just laugh at her. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and why? I mean, why would we say best at her? Leah has four sons that she actually gave birth to. And Leah, uh, Rachel has two sons by handmaid. And so, um, but... This competitive thing going on here keeps being emphasized. 
because these two children were born after Leah had given birth last, right? And so what does Leah think about? Verse 9 tells us. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took her maid Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. So now she's playing the same game that Rachel was in trying to stay in this competitive game for birthing children, particularly sons, for the husband Jacob. And Leah's maid Zilpah, it's interesting, uh, the, that that uh, Rachel's maid's name means trouble. <laughs> uh, but Zilpah doesn't. It means, literally the word is trickling, but it's about a fragrant aroma dropping from a fragrant plant. But anyway, uh, Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and of course Leah is overjoyed. She's back in the competitive game. And she named him Gad. And when we look at Gad, uh, the word Gad means troop. All right? So I, I, did, I had a little trouble putting that one together as far as meaning's concerned, but she named him Gad. So maybe, hey, I've got a troop of kids. You've just got a couple. I don't know. Leah's maid Zilpah also bore Jacob a second son, and she said, happy am I, for women will call me happy. So Clearly, at least Leah, and I think Rachel as well, is looking out to the culture that they're in, going, how do I stack up in this culture? When barren women didn't stack up well, but now the children are coming, and that was the mark of being blessed. And she called his name Asher, which means happy. So let's play a little catch-up. How many sons have been born in Jacob's lineage now? Eight. Eight. That's exactly right. Four, their birth mother was Leah. Two was Bilhah, which Rachel is going to take credit for. And two were from Zilpah, which Leah was going to take credit for. So we're, we're now at eight. And I think Leah is winning the childbearing contest, but we're going to find out there's more to it than that. So let's look at verse 14. We're in the time of the wheat harvest, and they probably were not planting winter wheat like we are here, so probably in the fall and their harvest. And Reuben, who is Reuben? The firstborn, the oldest of Leah's. And this could create an interesting discussion. How old do you suppose Reuben is now? Well, um, you're right on target with what um, some of the commentators would say. They kind of say in five to six. When you've got multiple birth mothers, pregnancies can overlap, right? So, but I don't think they were because this is told as a very sequential story. So now we've got eight sons. If you had one every nine months, you're looking at six years. But, of course... It started nine years, nine months before Reuben's birth, obviously, or something close to that for a normal gestation period. So a lot of people say five to seven, five or six, maybe seven. I don't know. Could it be more? The Bible doesn't really give us anything that puts their, their birth dates in any kind of an age, although it's told like it's kind of happening one right after the other. But anyway, he's a young man, okay? 
And he went out and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. So let's talk about mandrakes. So what are mandrakes? You may be more learned than I. And there's even a question about when he brought mandrakes, what part of the mandrakes did he bring? And mandrakes, uh, it looks like it's probably at least similar to the plant today that we would say is a mandrake. Uh, mandrakes, um, there's a variety that's most common in Europe and in the Middle East. Um, and it's in the nightshade family. And they are a flowering plant. By the way, the nightshade family, nightshade, my first experience with nightshade, my uncle worked for Bird's Eye Foods out in the state of Washington. And they were growing mammoth farms. I mean, they were farming a section, might be a field, uh, in the hills uh, around Walla Walla, Washington. And they were growing peas that Bird's Eye was buying, uh, contract farming, and that became the frozen peas in the Bird's Eye line. And harvesting them was down to the hour. I mean, they would like, we're going to start on this field at 10 o'clock. They were watching the maturity times and everything. But their big concern was nightshade. Because the harvesters, if you had nightshade in the field, would harvest the nightshade. And before it was done, it would not distinguish them from the peas, and they would wind up in the pea crop. That's a little bit of a problem because that particular nightshade, if you harvested the the little round fruit size of a pea uh, off of it, that was lethal. So it's kind of like, eh. so they were constantly out looking for it, dealing with it. And nightshades of that, or nightshade, nightshade is a, when it's generally found, it is a, a um, lethal thing to eat if you eat enough of it. Uh, the mandrakes are a relative and they also produce a little berry type thing most of them. They can be uh, orangish or yellow in color. The flower that the mandrake grows is generally a blue or a purple, maybe some white mixed in. Relatives or part of the nightshade family includes things you like, uh, most of you anyway. Potatoes and tomatoes are in the nightshade family technically. Uh, so not everything in the nightshade family is poisonous. Um, by the way, tobacco is also in the nightshade family in a broad sense. But the mandrakes, uh, if you partake of the roots, which is what often got used, the root comes out of the ground kind of like a carrot. And I saw pictures of it. At first, they were saying it resembles human form. And I'm like, I'm not sure where you're going with this. But they actually had pictures where they had pulled them out of the ground. And they generally have a trunk and appendages at the bottom that kind of remind you of legs and appendages that kind of remind you of arms. And so, I, okay, I, I get that now that now that I'm, I'm seeing some pictures. The mandrakes, uh, there's a lot of both superstition surrounding them. The occult often make a big deal about mandrakes. And in most varieties, if you partake of the root, 
if you partake enough of it, you're going to die. If you take a smaller amount of it, it's a mild hallucinogenic product, but it also can create other reactions in the body. One of them is uh, it works well as a laxative, okay? So here are these mandrakes. There is a superstition surrounding mandrakes that when we're talking about the root, partaking um, amounts of that root of the mandrake will aid in fertility or act as an aphrodisiac. And that is a superstition. I'm going to say that because there's no evidence support that. There's all kinds of superstitions that surround this. So I'm not going to go into all of those. But clearly, we can see from the context that whatever part, what, what, whatever um, Reuben has found, we're going to see that Rachel and Leah both think that somehow this could aid in becoming pregnant again. Now, did he bring them the roots? Or did he bring them some of the berries? It really doesn't say. It just says he found mandrakes. And he brought them, it sounds like the whole plant, to his mother Leah, but I don't, I'm not going to try to say that for sure. So apparently Rachel sees this because then, in verse 14, Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Now, if you believed that this was going to aid in pregnancy, becoming pregnant again, conception, what would Leah's motivation be to help that process out? We're in a competition here, and you want this aid toward beating me in this competition or competing with me. <clears throat> and you can see that in her answer in verse 15. But she, Leah, said to her, it is, a small, is it a small matter for you to take my husband? And now would you take my son's mandrakes also? And clearly what's behind that question is, you have won the battle for the affections of my husband. And in reading through what folks say about these verses, it's pointed out that in this culture, typically a man with more than one wife, and I think if you were a man with more than one wife, and I wouldn't recommend it, uh, but I, I would think you would find this very, very practical. The wives usually had separate dwelling places, either their own tents or homes or whatever it was. You didn't have them trying to be in the same general household. Um, so they each had their own household, <clears throat> and you didn't mix that up. And I think if you'd have had Leah and Jake and Rachel together every day, all day long, you know, we might have been reading about murder. I don't know. But nonetheless, probably there were separate households. And so it's very likely that what Leah is saying here, he goes to your house every night. He, his affections are with you. I'm just kind of the extra woman over here. You've taken my husband from me because Leah did have him first, didn't she? And so when Leah married Jacob, we don't know whether or not she was in on what Laban would ultimately come for his plan to give Rachel also to Jacob. But you've taken my husband, and now you want my mandrakes. Well, Rachel has a solution. We have this competition going for 
childbearing. Um, so, well, tonight, Leah, he can go be with you if you give me your son's mandrakes. So, out of their superstitious belief in mandrakes, Leah's pretty much wanting them, but so see how that bargain works out. Verse 16, and somewhere along the way I want to bring this out a little bit and probably more at the end. But when Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come to me for I have surely hired for you, hired you with my son's mandrakes. We haven't really seen anything of Jacob's thoughts surrounding all of this competition going on with these women. I don't know how he was handling it. We will find out as we continue in this chapter that Jacob is greatly prospering Laban during this 14 years. And so he's taking care of business. And we know right now they're in the wheat harvest, so he's been out in the field taking care of whatever his part of the responsibilities for seeing that the wheat harvest has done well. And there is no comment, I mean, we're looking at years that are transpiring right here in half of a chapter. So clearly, when Moses is writing, he's not putting every detail down, everything that was said, but I just find it fascinating, Jacob's thoughts, other than his response to Rachel, are pretty silent in here, and I would think as a man there would be some thoughts about all this competition going on, but there's nothing mentioned about his response, so he goes with Leah, and he labored with her that night, and verse 17, here's the active player again. These women think they're making it happen. Maybe they think Jacob's making it happen, but here's the active player in this whole passage. God gave heed to Leah. And she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. So now Leah is back in the birthing babies. And out of this agreement made between Rachel and Leah that Jacob would spend that night with Leah, we have another baby coming. And it's a fifth son. And Leah said, she gives God credit, God has given me my wages. I, I, that's an interesting word. It's like payment, like this was, I earned it. But nonetheless, she says, God gave it to me because I gave my maid to my husband. So that's an interesting statement that I don't know how to do much with. But she sees that God is apparently, she thinks, being honored by the giving of the maid on her behalf to bear children. But she named this child she just gave birth to Issachar. And I've let myself get behind my notes. Let me turn a page or two here. Uh, Issachar. I've lost it. Because um, I haven't turned enough pages yet. Um, uh, Issachar means... There is a recompense, which recompense is compensation or reward. So she sees Issachar as a payment or the reward. And, despite the mandrakes, Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son to Jacob. And Leah says, God has endowed me with a good gift. At least she didn't think she earned it this time. 
Now my husband will dwell with me. What is she after? She is craving the affection, the, the loving response of a husband that would dwell with her because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun, which means exalted. So let's review again. How many children do we, how many sons do we have now? Ten. Ten. So we're, we're getting to those twelve tribes pretty quickly. And so here we are with the tenth son being born, the sixth to Leah. And then in verse 22, <clears throat> I'm sorry, 21, afterward she bore a daughter and named her Dinah. So here comes, and I'm going to say it this way, the named girl of the family of Jacob, Dinah. She's probably at least named because there's going to be a whole controversy surrounding her later on in Genesis. But <clears throat> um, she's not the only daughter, I don't believe. I'm, I'm convinced of this, but go over to Genesis 46.15. Let's read this. Let's read 46.15. Genesis 46. 15. And there is more than one way to take this, but I think they're stretching to do it one way. Genesis 46, 15. So if we have 12 sons, just taking this verse at extremely literal face value to begin with, and then I'll back up and show you the other side of this. But if we have 12 sons and 33 children, how many daughters do we have? 21. So that would hardly make Dinah an only daughter, would it? Now, let's go back and realize what's going on in this passage. And I don't want to just teach the whole passage, but these are the ones who came to Egypt as the heading the New American Standard puts over starting in verse 8. And so we're getting this list of all of the people in Jacob's clan that come over to Egypt after Joseph secures their passageway and their place there. And in this, we're, we're seeing not only his sons, but their offspring and a few other things. And some folks, um, some commentators, would say, well, now, when they say daughters, they don't just mean first generation. They also mean granddaughters and, at some point, great-granddaughters. Okay, that is possible. I mean, that, that is not outside of what you might think. But the way this, this is in a list where they have listed the names of these later, following this, they'll list the names by the sons by name, and they're talking, they're, they're focusing a lot on the offspring of Leah and Rachel and their, and their um, surrogate mothers in here, the servants. And so my feeling is, and, and it's just nobody has, in my opinion, the absolute correct answer, but I'm, I'm, I'm saying maybe if it wasn't 33, it looks like there were more daughters than just Dinah. But Dinah's the only one named in the Old Testament. So that gives a lot of credit to the other way of looking at it, that maybe Dinah was the only daughter, not just the only one named. 
only not listing all of the daughters is not abnormal. There's a, there's a lot of that where the lineage is coming through sons, so they talk a lot about sons, but don't mention the name of every daughter involved, or maybe sometimes even any daughters. So it really could go without being way off the charts either way. Uh, but this is the one daughter that is given, that is named in the lineage of Jacob. So here we are at this point. Leah has had six boys of her own plus a daughter. And through Zilpah, that brings her total to eight. Rachel, we're not quite there yet. We're going to look at that in a minute. But she, at this point, has two children and neither one are actually birthed physically by her. In verse 22, it says, Then God remembered Rachel, and he gave her to her. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But I want to first just point this out. We've asked this question many times. Had God forgotten Rachel? Did he went, oh, well, wait a minute, I forgot something? No. What it means is he turned his attention toward her. This is the time he's going to out of his attention, give heed to her, and he opened her womb. So here is Rachel for the first time conceiving and bearing a son, and uh, she said, God has taken away my reproach. She is now going to be physically the mother of a child, mother of a son, and she named him Joseph, saying, may the Lord give me another son. And uh, Joseph means Jehovah has added. And so Joseph is the near baby, is at this point the baby of the family. And we know later on there's going to be 12, so Benjamin's coming. Um, so at the end of verse 24, Jacob has 11 sons and one daughter, six from Leah, two from Zilpah, her maid, one from Rachel, and two from Bilhah, her maid. And I'd just like to ask you to stop and think for a moment about a couple of things. And the first one is what it would be like to be living in this environment. The competitiveness. I mean, the silence of Joseph. It may be that Joseph didn't voice much. I mean, in that environment, you know, I've been asked those questions by my wife that you stop and think for a second before you answer and you go and you, you determine very quickly if there's a right answer to this question I don't know it okay now let's put all this competitiveness and everything that's going on and there's just not a whole lot being shown to us by Jacob outside of when Leah meets him and says oh by the way I have traded mandrakes for your presence in my home tonight he doesn't Say, that's not your decision to make. I mean, I'm, I'm just arrogant enough. I don't know what word to put on that. That's probably a good one. It ought to be something negative. But I'm, I'm just stubborn enough as a man to say, no, no, you think that's your decision to make, but that's not. I'm the man of this house. I'll decide where I'm sleeping tonight. You know, that would be my worldly response now maybe Jacob thought a minute maybe he thought about saying that and said no yes sir so she said um, he's tired 
Yep. That's that's just the way she said it. Well, I yeah, and, and particularly even in and in this um, patriarchal centered culture. I mean, that's a to me just a wild statement to make and think it's going to work. But I, I think if you think about what's going on in this household, um, I would say they're probably used to getting their way about most things. I mean. How much energy, I don't care if you're Jacob or somebody else in the household, are you going to put into trying to make sense out of this conflict? At some point you go, okay, what's next? Um, well, and his selection to begin with was Rachel. Yeah. Uh, I, I, yeah, I get that. Although I do think there's something here we don't want to miss. And there is, a, there is an honor thing here. and This is a shame-based culture. Jacob did take Leah as his wife. Now, maybe he didn't fully know what was going on, but he did. And an honorable man's going to honor his wife in that marriage in some fashion. I mean, he's not going to jump outside of conventions enough to bring shame on her or himself. I mean, that's going to be a piece of this. Um, and, And I don't want to put Jacob down. I'm not trying to do that. I'm just trying to get in the middle of this and think this through a little bit about what would this be like. And I think one thing it makes very clear is this is the first in this era with Jacob, you know, Esau's already been off and got multiple wives and whatever, but in terms of the, in the lineage of the promise, starts with Abraham, now Isaac, now Jacob. Jacob's the first one with multiple wives, and you can begin to see why God's plan for marriage doesn't include multiple wives or multiple husbands, for that matter. I don't even want to get into the weirdness that we're talking about there. But you, it doesn't make sense. God's plan is for a man and a woman. And when you start bringing this competitive nature into it, it just pulls everything out of distortion, Excuse me. It distorts everything. And so here, here is, here's this conflict going on. And so I wanted you to think about that for just a minute and then go to the next piece. Who's writing the book of Genesis? Who's he writing it to as the initial readers? The Jews. He's writing to the people on this trip from Egypt into the promised land who think they're really something because they're children of the promise. And they're all very cognizant of who's in what tribe, right? And here is Moses telling them, let me tell you how your tribes got started. And painting this picture of competition a little bit of superstition thrown in, and um, all of the turmoil and things that are going on, and I don't think if they probably had some level of oral traditions that had some of this brought out, but to be reading through this and to be knowing what Moses is recording isn't very complimentary to the source of your tribal work, is it? Now, in one sense, it's very complimentary. I don't want to miss this. Jacob is the 
now the bearer of the being the promise that started with Abraham, right? It's through his lineage it's coming. And God is an active player, but from the human side, they don't have a lot to be proud about. But yet God here is given the credit for the birth of these boys that would grow into men, and they themselves would be the lineage of the 12 tribes. But if they think it's because of their lineage, what they inherited through their births, that isn't anything all that special in terms of how we see the behaviors going on that led to that. And I, I think that a lot of what we see in the book of Genesis is geared toward not only their, but our understanding of what it is like to be a part of this human race, in their case, to be a part of the Jewish group that God established, that he made a nation out of, a people as being descendants of Abraham, they're special because God made them special. And when special things happen, who's the one at work? It is God. Not that they were something special, and that's even brought out elsewhere in the scriptures, that they weren't the most they were the least, and God chose them because they were least, so he could demonstrate who he was, not who they were. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I can't imagine living in this kind of a family. But they make it work before they're done. And uh, we'll see more of that as we go on through our studies of Genesis. Questions, comments? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so we're seeing here Jacob is not fulfilling his God's given command to be the husband and leader of his household. Yep. He is number one supplanting God's perfect plan and purpose by not doing that and uh, providing very poor leadership. He's actually he's just studied Jacob, this is a great microcosm of his life. He was not a leader. He was not taking care of business. And uh, got him in a lot of trouble. So I think that's, I, I think we see the results of a man not fulfilling his God given It's a good point. And number two, are you going to talk to me about Dan? I, I didn't plan to at this point, but go ahead. If you've got some things you want to add there. I think it's interesting the tribe of Dan. Dan was from Bilhaw. Rachel took things into her own hands. Says, I was my enemy. Bilhaw became Dan. And so we see Dan became a tribe that was cursed, mm -hmm. became very wicked, idolatrous. They're listed, they're given an inheritance in all the tribes in Joshua. But by the time we get to Ezra, Dan is no longer present. They are gone. And we get to Revelation chapter 7 and see the 12 tribes are listed among the 144,000, 12,000 each tribe. Dan's not there. Replaced by Manasseh. Yep. And so Dan was given a, an inheritance in southern Israel. They didn't like that. So they eventually moved the entire tribe to 
northern Israel near what is now present-day Lebanon. Next to Phoenicia, Tyre and Sidon, and there was the king Baals. And they were fully consumed in the <coughs> idolatry and the paganism of Phoenicia, Tyre and Sidon. And God brought judgment on that tribe. They were totally wiped out. Yeah, and replaced. Yep. And replaced. Yep. And so I think there is great spiritual significance in seeing what rebellion against God and disobedience to God brings about. And also I think it's significant to know that in the presence of sin and disobedience, God's eternal decrees, He works out and agrees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and another thing, and you, and you mentioned it, I don't know if you mentioned it here to me off to the side last week, but another thing that's interesting, you know, it's, it's easy to look at this and say, well, Rachel was the real bride. But when you look at the first four children born, and easiest for me to just turn this page, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, which tribe did Jesus come out of? And that's Judah, lion of the tribe of Judah. And so multiple times in through here, we see God responding out of his, and he does for Rachel as well, but there's a number of times that God does some really um, loving things and has clear, he's recognizing she's the unloved one, and so he sends some extra blessing her way. And the fourth child born to Leah is the lineage that which Jesus will come out. Jesus doesn't come out of the Rachel side of that lineage. So, yeah, God... You know, Romans 11.33, the depth of the riches and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and ways beyond finding out. If you memorize that in a different version, that's going to sound very different to you. But it's same meaning when it's all said and done. You know, God sees that his purposes are done. We talked a few weeks ago about the Romans 9, uh, Jacob and Esau. And God saw that his purposes were fulfilled in the choosing of Jacob. Not because he was anything he had done or would do. And I think that's pretty clear when we look at chapter 30 uh, and beyond. As Jacob lives his life out, you know, God didn't pick him because he was going to be the one that made everything happen. God is the one that's active and makes things happen. Thanks for that extra perspective, Dave. Anything else this morning? I really do appreciate that. All of you, please speak up when you've got some things like that to add. Yes, sir. Just out of curiosity, what would we speculate Laban's? Well, Laban, Laban's authority, and I'm just speaking off the top of my head. If I stopped and thought about it a while, I might have two or three other things that I might say were even more important. But Laban's got some authority here from a number of ways. With regard to the family of Jacob, clear back to Genesis 1, you separate from parents. So he doesn't have authority over the family. But Jacob is an employee. They've got a bargain. Laban is, has already shown his shrewdness and he's going to continue to work toward shrewdness in dealing with Jacob so he's you know Jacob did not leave a poor family but Jacob came into this area poor he didn't have a whole entourage of camels and things and servants he came in as Jacob and uh, he was probably skipping town when he made this trip to some extent. And so Laban has the wealth. 
Jacob is the worker, and so Laban has a lot of different opportunities to provide pull over Jacob, and he, he plays Jacob really well. I, I don't know what a strong man, by strong man I mean in personality, would have done about the marriage with Leah. I don't, it doesn't matter what he might have done. This is what he did do. It was recorded, and God, God didn't lose control any step along the way. But, uh, you know, it's clear David pointed it out well. He's not a, he's, I hesitate to say it this way because it means a little more than I want it to, but he was a mama's boy. He's still a mama's boy. Now, I don't mean that in terms of being, you know, completely tied up with the women of the house or whatever, but he wasn't the man's man. And, and I don't know that being a man's man means you're being God's man, okay? But there's parts of that where we have, the Dave mentioned it well, authority and responsibility to, to care for a family. But so here's Jacob reacting, and with his own shrewdness before it's done, with Laban. And uh, that's going to be an interesting discussion next time because there's some things in that next one that I don't know quite for sure how to take, Dave. Yeah, he was he was figuring out how to get his wealth. Yep, he was he was doing his own kind of manipulation, and uh, he used his authority over Laban's flocks to uh, line his own pockets. Yep, yeah, that's coming next not next week. Next week we don't have a Sunday school class, right? But coming in the next lesson. All right, thank you. We've taken, taken a little bit extra of your time here.